been going through a series in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and we've been unpacking what is often referred to as a Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it really is the best sermon ever preached, and, and it was preached by Jesus to a bunch of his disciples and a whole, other, a whole lot of other people listening as well. And we've been unpacking that for the past two and a half months or so, and um, it's exciting tonight because we, we pretty much enter with these two verses that we're going to be unpacking into the last section or the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. And in these two verses, Jesus begins his conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And in a sense, these two verses are the crescendo or the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been angling towards us the whole time. And you'll know that he's in the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been with us for some time or if you've read it, you'll know Jesus is basically unpacking the nature of true righteousness and exposing false righteousness or what true godliness is versus what um, is ungodly and what is legalistic and religious. Jesus is going, this is what true righteousness is like. This is what the kingdom looks like. And he's been teaching and building up to that. And he gets, he's been teaching and building up with that. And he gets to this point in the Sermon on the Mount where what he really does is gives us two choices. He says, it's either this way or this way. Based on what you've heard, you've got a decision to make. And the decision really is simple. It's either you are convinced that you can trust in yourself for righteousness and that on your own merits and your own goodness and righteousness, you can enter the kingdom of heaven and undo the injustice you've done and the sin that you've carried. Either you're good enough or you're not. That's what Jesus says. Either you can be good enough or you can't be good enough. That's the choice that he lays before us and before his disciples then and the listeners then as he brings the sermon to a close. He, his sense goes, you've heard me teaching and now you have to make a decision. And those are going to be the two verses that we unpack tonight. Those verses are in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. If you're wanting to read uh, in your own Bibles or you can just read behind me on the screen. So here's what Jesus says after this long message, packed full of really good stuff. Jesus says, now enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only few find it. Now the message tonight in some ways is really simple, but in other ways really difficult and you'll see why just now. But we're going to unpack the message under three headings. One, the two gates. Second point, the two roads. And the third point, the two destinations. I'm going to dive straight in with point number one, the two gates. Um, I had a laugh because having called it the two gates, we, like, we're really actually only going to unpack one gate here, right? Um, I just, just want continuity, right, um, with the points. But we're really going to unpack one gate, and I'll tell you why. Because every illustration at some point, if you push it too far, breaks down. And the same is true with Jesus' analogy of the gates here, or illustration of the gates. Um, in talking about two gates, if we had to set ourselves up to speak about two gates and the choice between two gates, it almost gives us impression that we're yet to make a decision that we're somehow in neutral territory, and that we're faced with two gates, the broad gate and the narrow gate. Whereas in actual fact, what's truth is that God's Word says that we were born into sin. We were born sinful. We were born iniquity. And we are, by default, on the broad road, which leads to destruction. And so the real question we have to answer is, how do I get off the broad road, and how do I enter through the narrow gate? And so that's why, in this section, we're going to be unpacking 
the narrow gate more than we are going to be speaking about the broad gate because we've all walked through it already. And what Jesus is trying to do is help us to understand that there's a decision that has to be made. That's why he speaks about the two gates and there being a choice. It's you either stay on this road or you choose the narrow gate. So Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. Verse 13, simple. And from this statement, although it's simple, we can draw some conclusions. The first one is this, that to be able to enter into the narrow gate, we have to know the gate is there, and we have to know what the gate looks like, or more specifically, who the gate is. Because when Jesus is describing a gate, he's referencing a person. He's referencing someone. The gate is a who, not an it. And here's what Jesus says about himself in the book of John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Also in Acts chapter 4, 11 to 12, Peter says, and he's speaking to the religious leaders and the Jews of the day, he says, Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Here's what Jesus is saying. He is the gate. He is the only way. There is no other way. The narrow gate is Jesus. But you'll find that the broad road that people walk on are filled with signs, filled with signs, filled with markings, and all sorts of fake gates claiming to be the way to heaven or the way to prosperity or the way to blessing or the way to fulfillment. But all those gates end up actually doing is taking you on a detour and placing you on a different part of the broad road. What Jesus is saying when he says you need to enter through the narrow gate is you need to understand that he is the gate and he's the only true exit off of the road that leads to destruction. Jesus is the narrow gate through which we enter into life. There is no other way to life other than through Jesus. Any deviation from the person and work of Jesus as revealed to us through the Scriptures, any deviation from the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation which comes through faith by grace alone, any deviation, any variation of that leads one to hell. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. So that's the first conclusion or the first point that we can draw out of that verse 13, that we need to know that the gate is there. We need to know who the gate is, and that's Jesus. Another conclusion we can draw from, from verse 13 is that we need to enter. And this may seem really simple, but I think we really need to stress this. Jesus gives a command. He says, enter in. He gives a command to all of those who would follow him. He says, you need to enter this is not something, in other words, Jesus is saying that's going to happen by accident. This is not going to happen by osmosis. You can camp outside the gate. You can admire the gate, but you're not just going to slip into salvation. You're not just going to find yourself on the other side of the gate. You're not going to enter in other than through a dedicated, committed, personal decision to do so on your part, based on what you believe about Jesus. Responding to the call of Jesus requires an individual to repent and to believe and to commit to being obedient to the king. It's not enough to just study the narrow gate. It's not enough to just admire the structure 
of the narrow gates. It's not enough to just admire the wisdom and the beauty of the gospel and what lies beyond the narrow gate. It must be actively entered into. I don't know about you, I've, I've found that the world is full of people that like to study things but do nothing about it. We admire the gospel from afar. We admire the gate. We admire the work of Jesus on the cross. We admire the ethics of Jesus and the virtues of Jesus. And a lot of other things about Jesus, you might even very much admire and appreciate the message that he preaches on the mount. But we don't respond. People don't respond. And Jesus warned against this. This is why he gets to this point. He goes, you need to make a decision based on what you've heard me say. Do you believe it is true? Or is this just pie-in-the-sky idea stuff? Am I really who I say I am? Because if I am, you need to make a decision. You can't sit on the fence here. In Revelation, Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea, and he says, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And in studying that, I just had this, I'm not going to call it revelation. It wasn't revelation, but it was just a realization of how well the Laodiceans understood what Jesus was saying. Often I thought that being cold meant being unsaved. So in a way, Jesus was saying, I wish you were unsaved, like not saved at all, or that you were saved. But because you're pretending to be either or, that's, that's worse. But what I found out was that the church in Laodicea was obviously in Laodicea, the city, and it was really struggling for water. It was difficult to get water to that city. And so what they did was they built this elaborate aqueduct, and they piped water from the mountains, which was ice cold, down to the city in Laodicea. But then they also were able to get water from a place down the valley which had hot springs. And there was piping hot water which would come out of the ground there. But by the time the cold water got to the city through the aqueduct, it was tepid and lukewarm. And by the time the boiling water from the springs got to the city, it was lukewarm. And so all that they had to drink was this lukewarm, tepid water. And no one enjoys lukewarm water. And Jesus is saying, I just I wish you were like a nice ice cold frappe on a midsummer's day. Or I wish you were like a nice cup of mocha chocker before the fireplace on a midwinter's evening. That's what I wish you were like. But you're lukewarm and that's not good at all for anything. So I'm going to vomit you out my mouth. And so Jesus says here, when he says make the decision between the two gates, he's going, there's no fence sitting. You're either in or you're out. The third observation, the first one is we need to know that there's a gate and who that gate is. The second is we need to actively enter in. The third observation is just that the gate is narrow. Right, the gate is narrow. We've got to ask ourselves this question, why does Jesus refer to the narrow gate as narrow? What does that mean? And the idea of narrow here would, would be one of a turnstile. The idea is that only one person can enter in at a time. And that doesn't mean a group of people can't get saved. But what he's trying to say is that you can't enter in based on ethnicity. There's no group salvation here. You can't enter in based on your relationship with a group of people or with a person. It doesn't matter what heritage you have, how godly your family are, how godly your spouse is, how godly your friends are. It doesn't matter. Secondhand faith is not saving faith. And so in that sense, the gate is very narrow. It's you before the Lord and you alone, no one else. Also in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, 
says there is one God, one mediator, also between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. There is no other mediator. There is no other Savior. Saving faith demands a commitment to Jesus from the individual. There is no other way. And in that sense, too, it is very narrow. And I think Christians, we get hammered for this sometimes, especially in a world that is post-modern and post-truth. We get called narrow-minded and ignorant and arrogant. And our response to people who call us narrow-minded should be this. You have no idea how narrow-minded I really am. Because that's what God calls us to. That's what we have to be in this regard. There is no room for deviation to the left or to the right. It is Jesus or nothing else. We are very narrow-minded. Anything else on either side is heresy and a twisting of the truth. And in that sense, the gate is very narrow. That's why Jesus says it's narrow. Which leads us to point number two, the two paths. So in the same way that Jesus is contrasting the two gates, he contrasts the two, de- or the two paths outside of those gates, or on the other side of those gates. He says this, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. If we were using modern terminology, we'd say something like the broad lifestyle versus the narrow lifestyle, or the godless lifestyle versus the godly lifestyle. And again, the question we've got to ask is, what does Jesus mean by the word broad? Why does he describe the road to destruction as broad? The word that he uses gives us the idea that there's lots of space. There's tons of space on the broad road. You can take anything you want with you. You can carry all your baggage, all your sin, all your ungodliness. You can make up the rules. You can live like you want. You can call the shots. You can essentially be the king of the broad road. You don't have to leave anything behind because there's space for it. There's space to indulge in immorality, in self-righteousness. There's there's place to fan your character flaws into flame and not submit them to the Lord. To carry on with the analogy of the road, there, there are no speed bumps, right? There are no speed bumps. There are no lanes There are no gutters, there are no pavements, there are no boundaries, no need for the Beatitudes which Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with. No restrictions from the Word of God to submit to. No need to become more like Jesus. The road is broad. In that sense, the road is broad, and that's what Jesus is saying. There's just so much you can take with you. It's easy because you make it up as you go. You call the shots, you indulge your sinful nature, and that's why Jesus says many people find it. I think we can add a a little tag on to that, and many people remain there because that's more comfortable. However, in Proverbs, God's Word says in chapter 16, verse 25, there is a way which seems right to man, but in the end it leads to destruction. There is a way which seems right to man, but in the end it leads to destruction. So that's why the road is broad. But then Jesus contrasts that with the narrow road, and he says this. The narrow, the narrow way, the narrow road leads to life. The narrow road is totally the opposite of the broad road. It's a road lived according, it's a road or lifestyle lived according to the standards of God. 
It's a, it's a road that you walk where you desire to please the Lord and to fulfill His desires for your life. It's a road that you walk so that you can ultimately bring Him glory. It's a road of self-denial, which is totally the opposite of the broad road. The word that Jesus uses, narrow, refers to a grape press. And the word literally means the pressed way or the compressed way. And it carries this idea of being constricted and confined. A good image would be of walking on a very narrow path along a cliff. And you get to a pass and you've got to walk through this pass. And on either side of you is a sheer cliff wall. And you can literally just squeeze through where the back and your chest are touching the wall. And it's very claustrophobic. And there's this squashing that happens. That's the idea that Jesus has and that he gives with this word narrow. And the reason why it's narrow, and the reason why we can celebrate the fact that this road is narrow, is because it means that there's no space there for the stuff that Jesus wants us to shed. There's no space on the narrow road. You can't take your old master with you. There's no space for the old self. The new has come, the old has gone, Jesus says, if we enter through the narrow gates. You'll need to give up your self-proclaimed rights and freedoms your self-proclaimed righteousness. You can no longer live to please yourself, but to please the Lord Jesus. You must do as the Lord pleases. You can no longer make up the rules. God has already set them. And you don't live to obey your flesh. You live to obey the King. And so as you walk this road, you're confined and you're restricted and constricted and you're shaped and molded into the image of Jesus as you walk. As you walk the contours of this path, so you'll find that there are places where the baggage that you've been carrying causes you to be stuck. And if you've walked with the Lord for some time, you'll know this. You'll get to a point in your relationship with Him, and Jesus says you cannot carry this any longer. The narrow path is determined that you cannot fit through there unless this thing goes. And sometimes we wrestle, but then eventually we get to the point where we go, oh, this backpack's not really worth it. It was weighing me down anyway. And that's what Paul was referring to when he says, chuck off the sin that so easily entangles. And so we take this stuff off and we walk and we find that we're just bare, him and I, you and him, as we walk this narrow road. Our sinful natures hate the confines of the narrow road. And that's why Jesus says many people will find the broad road, but not many will find the narrow road. Not many will find the narrow road. Our sinful natures hate to be squashed and to be molded into the likeness of Christ. And anyone who says, because of this, I just, as I hear people preaching the gospel, I'm speaking about you, not in our church necessarily, but over the internet and, and, and messages that I've listened to, um, people evangelizing massive groups of people. There's this promise that we're given. I think there's a, in a good-hearted attempt to have people understand the blessings of the Christian life. But, but almost what we say is, come to Jesus, everything's going to be okay. Life's going to become so much better. And in some ways it does, but in other ways life becomes so much more difficult as a Christian. And Jesus wants us to understand that when he speaks about the narrow road, it's not going to be easy. I think anyone who's ever said that living for Jesus was easy has never really tried it. Because it's a life that you're called to live not in your own strength. It's impossible. That's what Jesus says. You'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. It's a His power at work within us as opposed to our own. 
you can lose everything and actually are expected to lose everything for the Lord. People have lost families, jobs, friends, the comforts of this world. They've even lost their lives for walking through the narrow gate and on the narrow road. You subject yourself to the will of God no matter what, no matter how uncomfortable or how illogical it may seem, you surrender to the Lord. The narrow road involves discipline when you disobey the Lord and step out of line. And for some reason, Christians get hung up on this thing, that the Lord will discipline us. And I love it when the Lord disciplines me, not because it feels good, but because I know that He's a Father who wants the best thing for me. Here's what it says in Hebrews. It says this, My son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord's discipline, the Lord disciplines the one He loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. We live in a world and in a society that rejects authority. We have this issue. Something about our sinful nature hates being under authority. And I just thought about you know, traffic fines that we get. And I said, you pay one. Or your TV license. How many times have you tried to justify not doing any of those things because you disagree with the authorities in place that have had you do it? There's this kicking against the goad. And when we look at entering in through the narrow gate and this idea of being under Christ's authority and, 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 and the necessity for him to discipline us sometimes, we don't like that. The narrow road will involve suffering and persecution. Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. I see so many Christians getting surprised when the world hates them. Jesus says, don't be surprised. They hated me. They're going to hate you. The world, you would have noticed if you've walked with the Lord for some time, is not a luxurious meander through the meadows. It is not a meander through the elfin trail. It is difficult. It is tough. Christianity in its truthfulness, because it is a narrow road, a constricting way, is not a soft option for the faint-hearted and the weak need. And when we call people to Jesus, we need to have them understand this. That Jesus calls you to something extraordinary, but this is going to cost you everything. That's why the road's narrow. Living a beatitude life of brokenness and humility and righteousness in this world is tough. However, the hard way of the narrow gate in the end is easy compared to the broad road when you consider the ultimate destination. And that's why Jesus moves into that space of speaking about where the roads end in verse 14. But Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he says this, knowing what he said about the narrow road, knowing what that lifestyle is going to mean for us. And you'll know what he means when you've been someone who's come face to face with your sin and the realization that before the living God, you are not right. And you haven't been able to sleep at night. And when you look in the mirror, you're convicted about the shame and the pain and embarrassment of your life. And those deep, dark, black thoughts that you have that no one else knows. When you look at the mirror and you realize that that is going to keep you from relationship and eternity with the Lord, you'll know what he's speaking about when he says, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. 
once you've come to the place of letting that go and surrendering that to Jesus and having him forgive you and say it's done and you're now righteous and we're okay and we are in relationship with one another and you're my son and you're my daughter and you can enter into the kingdom freely because I've loved you enough to pay the price for you and you're able to sleep well at night knowing that God has made a way. You'll know that even though the road is difficult, Jesus says, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. The Christian learns to embrace this paradox, this gospel paradox of the narrow way being really tough, but also at the same time being the easiest way. The cross is the way to glory. The narrow gate frees you. The narrow gate actually brings true liberty. Christianity promises a new life which brings blessing and causes us to experience the righteousness and the intimacy of God in our lives. That's a beautiful thing. The broad road leads to destruction and hell, which in you know, the long run means that it's really the most difficult road to walk. And that's why, and we're going to end with this this evening, Jesus unpacks the two destinations. He says the one destination ends in life, the other one ends in destruction. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Let's look at the destination of the broad road. Jesus says it ends in destruction. I think typically when we think about this word destruction, we think of something being annihilated, done away with forever, ceases to exist. However, this word refers to loss, total loss and absolute ruin. It doesn't mean annihilation that you cease to exist. It means that whoever suffers the destination of the broad road is going to be a person who's lost everything and will suffer in the fires of hell for eternity. The truth is the broad road leads to hell. Every person on the broad road will eventually fall off the precipice into hell. That's where that road leads. We're not going to unpack all these scriptures, but let me just give some insight from the scriptures as to what that place is like. It's a place of unquenchable fire. It's a place of memory and remorse. It's a place of unsatisfied thirst. It's a place of frustration and anger and unspeakable pain and misery. It's a place of eternal separation from the living God and undiluted wrath. And here's the idea that I think a lot of us have. That's going to come to an end at some point in time. That at some point in eternity, God's going to go, it's enough. You've suffered enough. That's it. Come now. But the reality is, this is never going to end. It is never going to end. It goes on and on and on. And no matter how much we weep and gnash and mourn and cry out, there is no hope because hell is an eternal separation from the living God. His ears are dull to the cries of those who will be in hell. It is a terrible place of torment. And I think we've missed this. I think somehow in our gospel preaching, we're afraid to preach this because somehow we've bought into the lie that we mustn't offend people. The gospel is offensive. 
Jesus was offensive to people when he told them your self-righteousness is going to end you in hell. You are whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, dead on the inside. This needs to break our heart. When I think about this and allow myself to ponder on the horrific torture that is hell, it drives me to want to be used by God to bring the good news of what I have to other people. How can I be silent about the good news of Jesus if it is going to save people from this? I don't think that if we exhausted all the vocabulary of every language that has ever existed, that we could still eloquently and sufficiently describe the nature of hell. But then Jesus says, there's the other side and the other destination. And that's heaven or the new earth where somehow the, the throne room of God in heaven where God lives and exists is going to amalgamate with the new earth that Jesus has created and the new Jerusalem that he's created. And we're going to be in the presence of God for eternity. And as the broad road is exactly the opposite of the narrow, so hell is exactly the opposite of this place that Christians get to go to. And just again, a brief, a brief glimpse of that place. It's, it's a place where there are going to be no tears. Not a single tear. A place where there is no pain, no sorrow, no death. Where there's no sin. And my, one of my favorites is the fact that there's going to be no night. And that's not to say I don't like sleeping. I, like, I enjoy a good nap. But what's exciting about this is we wake up every day to the sun rising, and that brings light to the, to the world. In heaven, there's no sun. The glory and the radiance of God himself illuminates heaven. That is going to be beautiful to behold for eternity, and we're never going to get enough of it. You're just never going to get enough of the glory and the radiance of God. There's no curse with God and with Jesus, we will be for eternity. We will be in the presence of God forever. We'll get to walk with our Savior. Appreciate His presence. I think about John on the island of Patmos as he wrote the book of Revelation, how he fell at the feet of Jesus as though dead when he saw Jesus for who he really was. I just think we're going to be face down over and over and over again in heaven, overwhelmed with the glory and the greatness of God. And it's never going to end. It's never going to end. It's going to be a place, a glorious city, the new Jerusalem. And it says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, it's going to be a place of glorious wonder and beyond our description and beyond our ability to comprehend and to understand now. And so while we're here, the narrow road might be the most difficult road to walk for us. It might be the most confining and restricting and shaping road there is to walk. But ultimately, it is the best road because it ends up in a place of great life and abundance. And the broad road, although it is easy, ultimately is the most difficult road because it ends up in destruction and eternal death. So Jesus says at the end of his message of the Sermon on the Mount, you've got a decision to make. This is who I am. This is what it means to follow me. This is truth. Now you decide. You evaluate your life based on the teachings of Jesus and you go, do I match? And if I don't, what do I do about it? Well, there's only one option, that's to accept Jesus. 
And so tonight, I want to I want to end. I want to end this by by calling people to respond, and we're gonna we're gonna share communion together. And if you're a believer in James, you guys can come up. If you're a believer in this place, I want to encourage you and go. Keep walking in the narrow road. Keep allowing God to remove the baggage and the stuff that hinders you. Keep allowing Him to confine you and to constrict you and to mold you according to the narrow road so that you can be more like Him. And I want to encourage you to keep walking this road because as we do that, we set an example for people of what it is like to be Christ followers. And they get a glimpse into the kingdom of God as it is. And that should stir our hearts to do it with greater passion and greater fervor. If you're in a place tonight where you know that there's stuff that you're carrying and you're sitting on the fence, I want to say to you tonight, it's your opportunity to respond to Jesus. If you don't know the Lord, but you've been convicted by the stuff that you're carrying in your life and the things that you've done, Jesus and the price he paid on the cross is enough. And you can come to him this evening and you can say, God, forgive me. I repent of my sin. I want to follow you. And the Lord will graciously and willingly accept you as a son and as a daughter. And he will wash and cleanse you. And you will enter in through the gate onto the narrow path. And you will begin a journey of discipleship that is like no other. And I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you that when God says he'll never leave you or forsake you, it's a promise that he keeps. And he will help you to endure to the end where you will be face to face with him one day and you will hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not get away from me. I never knew you. So tonight, this is how we're going to respond. The team are going to begin to usher us into a space of worship. We don't just play music to emotionally manipulate ourselves. We do it because there's a space and a place that music has that brings healing and allows us to emotionally be in that place with the Lord. But as that happens... As believers, we can respond to this message and go, Jesus, thank you so much that you're the gate through which I've entered. Thank you so much for the narrow way. Thank you for your work on the cross where you shared your blood and your body was broken. And the night before he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, Jesus said to his disciples, after they shared supper together in the upper room, he said, this is my body broken for you. And he broke the bread and he gave it to me. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember that I'm the narrow gate in a sense. And I'm breaking my body for you. And he did the same with the cup. He took the cup and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you. The blood of the new covenant. Where it's by grace, not by works. And we're going to respond by taking communion tonight. So we're going to go and we're going to take the bread. Spend some time with friends and family or by yourself with the bread. And just appreciate and remember the Lord Jesus. And if you're in a place tonight where you need to repent and you need to accept Jesus, I just want to say, it is good that the Lord brings you to a place where your desire for healing and wholeness outweighs your fear of shame and embarrassment. If the Lord has got you to that place, respond to Him tonight. Come to the front. Let us pray for you. Let us lead you in a prayer of repentance. Let us, let us lead you into that space where you give your life to Jesus. And let's celebrate that. Every single believer in this place tonight had that encounter with Jesus. And we went, Jesus, I've accepted you. And we've declared it to our brothers and our sisters and our family. I'm a Christ follower. I can't promise you it's going to be easy, but I can promise you there's going to be life and forgiveness and wholeness. So respond tonight to Jesus. Come and repent and just go, God, forgive me. And the Lord will forgive you. Amen. Let me pray for us and then in your own time respond appropriately to the leading of the Lord.
take communion and at the appropriate time James and the team are just going to let loose into a space of worship for us tonight Father I want to thank you for your word and that we can sit under it that we can be convicted by your word that we can be shaped by your word and I pray Lord Jesus come and have your way in our lives through the spirits may we be people who are bold and courageous and passionate for our Savior and for the message that you've given us to carry into this world Lord, I pray, help us to stay on the narrow path and to be confined and constricted and shaped and molded by you like clay in the potter's hand. God, shape us into a a form of our Savior that the world can see and appreciate and surrender to in Jesus' name. And I pray for those people, Lord, who, who need to give their lives to you tonight. People need to say, God, enough is enough. I've either camped outside the narrow gate for too long or I've just kept walking past. God, may tonight be the night where they actively step through into life. In Jesus' name I pray. So let's take communion together. Amen.